This episode contains discussions of sexual violence. It's important to know there are people and resources available to help. No one should ever suffer in silence. No one should ever be ignored. If you need help, Rain, that's R-A-I-N-N, has a lot of resources, including a 24-hour helpline. That's 800-656-HOPE. 800-656-HOPE. This podcast is not associated with RAIN, but they are a wonderful resource dedicated to making the world a better place. Darker Days of Dorothy Gale Aftermath For Episodes 51 through 56 Chapters 45 through 49 Judeca Cositis Interlude 1, 2, and 3 As well as Canto 34 of Dante's Inferno Treachery Against Benefactor Well, here we are again. This one is probably going to be long. There's a lot to unpack here. We've got the final canto of the Inferno, as well as five chapters. I'm going to talk about the Apostles. going to talk about the Devil. going to talk about Dorothy and her friends. As well as one of the most important and influential times of my life. We're going to have some fun. But we're also going to get a bit more serious as well. So, let's get to it. Oh, 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 oh. Also, uh, before I get going, uh, there is an in sync joke in this episode. I wrote it before they did their uh, reunion thing on MTV. Uh, not too long ago. So it's a little out of date. I didn't want to go back and rewrite the joke, although I, I probably could have. I, I could probably switch out any boy band. But uh, just just so you know, slightly out of date, unintentionally timely joke about sync somewhere in here. Okay, so uh, yeah, now we can get on with uh, the, the, the show. We have reached the end of the Inferno. Still traversing the frozen lake of Cositis, we visit the last two rounds of the Ninth Circle. This is Judeca. And here we see why the lake of Cositis has frozen. It's also here that we come face to face, or, I guess, face to faces, with Satan himself. 
As we know, the Ninth Circle is treachery. We've seen treachery to kin with Cain and Abel. We've seen treachery to country with Ugolino gnawing on the head of Ruggieri. We've bore witness to treachery to guests with a collection of dinner party massacres. And now we see treachery to benefactor. Dante and Virgil enter the territory of Satan here. He's frozen, waist-deep in the lake, and has been reduced to nothing more than a raving lunatic, comparable to a mad dog. In fact, he's very similar to Dante's version of Cerberus, only on a much, much bigger scale. He has three heads, one looking forward and two looking back. On his back, he has two large wings, tattered reminders of his time spent as an angel. With each flap of these massive wings, he sends an arctic blast across the ninth circle, freezing everything. In the center head, looking forward, is Judas. We all know the story of Judas, right? I mean, it's like only one of the most famous, or infamous tales of Christianity. A refresher? <laughs> of course. Why not? You see, Jesus used to run with a pretty tough crowd. Real birds of prey. <laughs> Get it? Because they, they prayed a lot. Anyways, these twelve dudes were like the original boy band. There was Peter... Bold and confident, Andrew, open-minded, and then there was James, sometimes referred to as Son of Thunder, which would be a sick wrestling name, by the way. Oh, yeah, I pray for you, if you don't pray to him, brother. And, of course, there was John, the brother of Andrew, who was the passionate one, Real dream about that guy. Philip was inquisitively curious. He was straightforward, no nonsense. He was practical and lacking in imagination. But it was his golden voice and relatable compassion that not only kept him in the group, but also helped hold the group together. And then, of course, we have Bartholomew, or Nathaniel. Yeah. I know, those names are so similar. Anyways, he was the well-mannered and well-composed guy. The observantly quiet bro. And there was Thomas. Well, what is there to say about Thomas? He was a bit of a doubter, the skeptic. You mean to tell me that our boy Jeezy is back? Nah, I don't buy it. Like, if NSYNC were to be resurrected and Lance Bass was all like, You mean to tell me the crew is getting back together? Nah, I don't buy it. I don't know why they all have that voice, by the way, but it amuses me, so I'm going to keep using it. I also literally had to look up the members of NSYNC for that joke. My Bing search history will forever be marred with that knowledge. I hope you appreciate all the work I do for this show. Matthew was humble, happier to talk about to the big JC than himself. 
So, like, he's out there talking about the band, but not so much about emphasizing his own role. A real humble hippo, that guy. James was the quiet one. Simon? Yeah, <laughs> the wild card, motherfuckers. The zealot, whose words and erratic behavior often came before his own thoughts. Bit of a loose cannon. He'd be walking around with his collar popped and that stupid goatee slapped across his chin. Jude was the intense one. You know, maybe not the lead singer, but the one that gets the occasional solo, and when he gets it, oh, he gets it good, and he's like all in and makes all the ladies swoon. And some of those guys, too. I'm not judging anyone. And, of course, we have Judas, the true bad boy. The baddest of the bad. The traitor. The one that tells the National Enquirer that all the other dudes actually prefer ranch on their salads instead of blue cheese. He also gets the lead singer crucified. So, you don't get much worse than that. Anyways, what is the point of all of this, you're asking? And to be honest, I'm not entirely sure anymore. I was actually just looking to explain why Judas is being eaten by Satan's center head. There really was no reason to get into all that apostle talk. Anyways, he was the traitor to his lord. Possibly your lord. A lot of people's lord. And that's why he is here. Or there. Or whatever. In the other heads of Satan, the two that are looking behind him are Brutus and Cassius. You know, those bad hombres that murdered J.C. No, 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 no. Not that J.C. Not Jimmy Carter. The other J.C. Julius Caesar. They killed Caesar. And it was probably for the better when you get right down to it, because, you know, he was about to lead an ape rebellion, for Christ's sake. Wait a minute. No, no. Wrong Caesar. Okay, enough of this nonsense. These fools betrayed their leader, and for their treacherous sins, they will spend eternity being eaten. Virgil informs Dante that they now have seen all there is to see in hell. This infernal tour has come to its end. Dante's all like, uh, So uh, what now? How do we get out, Doc? That was my Marty McFly impression. I know, it was bad. It was, I get it. But anyways, that's what he said. Anyways, he was asking how to get out of there. And Virgil, he's all like, piggyback ride, motherfucker. Once Dante's done squealing with childish joy, he climbs on Virgil's back and holds on for dear life. Virgil begins scaling Satan. Climbing this giant like the kid from Shadow of the Colossus, he gets about halfway up and has to flip upside down, which is now actually right side up. Mind-bending, I know. That's some Christopher Nolan-level storytelling right there. Anyways, Virgil explains to Dante the reason for this turnaround. He tells Dante that they have effectively passed through and beyond the center of the earth. When Lucifer was cast down from the heavens, he landed headfirst. 
and his body is now in the center. So what was right side up is now upside down. I think it's interesting that Dante's version of Lucifer, while impressive and large, is actually fairly mundane. In a way, he isn't any different than some of the other sinners or beasts in the Inferno, like the Cerberus with its three gluttonous heads just frothing at the mouths, or Caponius in Canto 14 raging and blaspheming, or the Minotaur in Canto 7. Dante speaks to a lot of sinners and hears a lot of stories. He really doesn't get anything out of Lucifer. No grand speech, no epic monologue, no angry or spite-filled story. Dante was meticulous, though. It would appear that everything he did, he did for a reason. And I have to assume his decision to leave out a conversation with arguably the most interesting figure in hell was entirely intentional. Like, maybe he didn't want to give this beast any kind of glory or added attention by letting him speak and explain himself. If that makes any sense. Moving on to Darker Days of Dorothy Gale. This one is less of a one-to-one adaptation of the Inferno than some of the other chapters. But that's not to say I've abandoned my poetic inspiration. Last we saw Dorothy, the woodman, and Mister, was at the giant's well. Sionfa had been crushed, and Dorothy and company were in the gentle hands of the giants, enveloped in a soothing darkness and granted a slight reprieve from the horrors they had all just bore witness to. They wake up in a frozen wasteland, with no real sense of direction, and the giants long gone. There's a large black structure off in the distance, and they assume that's the next stop on their journey. There's a cold arctic blast here that rusts the tin woodman, freezes Mr.'s straw, and puts Dorothy on the brink of hypothermia. Once they reach the black structure, the woodman breaks through with his axe. Inside, the walls are tall and dark, and the wind has died down to the point that it's almost non-existent. They are greeted by Judah. He welcomes them to Judeca. The name of this place is obviously a direct reference to the Inferno. In the Inferno, Dante sees Judas being eaten by Lucifer's central head. In Darker Days, we have Judah. I'm sure there's a reason I changed it to Judah from Judas, but that reason, it escapes me entirely. And why I didn't just change it when I recorded? Well, I don't know. But here we are with Judah. He offers up a lot of exposition here. Honestly, I'm not a huge fan of blunt exposition. That's usually my biggest problem with, like, crime shows and procedural dramas. 
You mean to tell me this serial killer is out there killing young gay men because he's gay himself and has a deeply seated self-hatred that manifests in violent ways because his mother used to beat him and call him a faggot? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. But I'm also telling you that he uses a hammer because when he was a child, he used to build birdhouses out of old rusty nails and scraps of wood. That's also why we've been finding bird feathers at every crime scene. Right. Because he loved birds. Not only because they had the freedom he wished he had, but because they were the one thing he felt never passed judgment on him. Exactly. That's why the taunting letters he sent to the police were written in what looked like chicken scratch. Ugh. I hate it. I hate it so much. It drives me nuts. Anyways, here we have Judah. Judah serves not only as one of the punished, but also as the main source of knowledge. A better writer could probably figure out a more effective way to get this information across. Not this guy, though. I even acknowledge how silly I feel this situation is when Dorothy points out how strange it is that this little man gave her such a convenient and long-winded explanation of the events leading up to this moment. In this explanation, he tells our travelers, and you, that Ozma's sister Devorin created Judeca and set him to guard it. He explains that the labyrinth leads to a bottomless pool and that the bottomless pool is fed by the tears and bile of a great beast in the center of a large mountain on the other side of the maze. He tells them that Ozma and her sisters believed if they could make it to the mountain, they could strike some sort of a deal with whatever was on the inside of it and escape back to Oz. Judah turns out to be a real Judas here. He pulls a knife and gives it to Dorothy. He has no interest in killing anyone, but he wouldn't mind it if Dorothy killed the sisters. If this were an old-school RPG, the screen would pause right here. Your little sprite-based character would turn and face you, and some kind of chipper or epic tune would play, accompanied by the words... Dorothy acquires the Blade of Judah. He leads them to the bottomless pool, and we get to a boss battle. Well, not really. It's really not much of a battle. More of a stern confrontation. Devorin shows up, kills Judah for his betrayal, and shows off her mad telekinesis skills. Dorothy overplays her hand here. With confidence, she calls herself a witch killer and tries her best to intimidate Devorin. It appears to be working, but we find out that Devorin is simply toying with her. With her mind, she holds Dorothy in place, and makes a big show of it. The importance of this moment is to further confirm that Dorothy is a victim of sexual abuse. Devorin tells Dorothy she knows all about her. She knows Mombi's death was an accident. Krista was killed by the lion. Glinda, at the hands of the lost children held captive in Lothor's book, 
and Vel by Sianfa, before Sianfa was killed by the giants. She points out that she knows more still. She knows about Dorothy's mother and father. And she can see Aunt Em and Uncle Henry in Kansas. She tells Dorothy she's not alone. She knows the pain and suffering all too well. She asks Dorothy if she's sure she wants to kill her. Asks if she really wants to go back home. Before Dorothy can answer, the woodman steps in and drives his axe into Devoren's chest. I'll leave it up to you, the listener, to decide what Dorothy's answer might have been had the woodman not stepped in. Would she have changed her mind? Would she have opted to stay in Oz after all? Or would she still try to get back home? The woodman isn't necessarily thinking of Dorothy here. Sure, he's helping her. He frees her from the witch's invisible grasp. He sees the manipulation at play. And perhaps he's even grown fond of Dorothy and doesn't want to see her hurt. But remember, he's out to save his wife. Even if Dorothy had a change of heart and decided not to kill Devoren, or decided not to go back home, the woodman would probably still be willing to get his hands dirty here. Because for him, the story is not about Dorothy. It's about Beatrice. Dorothy finishes the job, and with the death of Devoren, Judeca freezes. Upon entering the chamber of Cositis, they see a large, three-headed beast. This is a direct reference to the Inferno and Dante's vision of Lucifer, though I've made some key changes. For starters, Cositis in Darker Days is not the Frozen Lake, but instead the name of my version of Lucifer. In Dante's vision, Lucifer has three heads, but they are human. In mine, the heads are that of a she-wolf, a leopard, and a lion. This is a reference to the beginning of the Inferno, in which Dante meets all of these impressive beasts. A quick reminder of what each of these symbolize in the world of Dante. The wolf, with its ravenous appetite, represents avarice, or extreme greed. The lion, with its terrifying strength, is the eternal symbol for pride. The leopard, in its deadly beauty, represents lust. All of these, to me, fit better here, at the end of this portion of Darker Days, than they do or would at the beginning. Dorothy has seen the greed and raw hunger for power of not only the sisters, but the figures that rule the other side. She has grown prideful, courageous, and strong through her journey down here. She has witnessed and experienced the vile torment that can so often be associated with lust. We also get more out of the tyrant monster than we do of Dante's. While I still avoid the long monologue or real conversation, I make sure to let the audience know 
that this beast is more than just an angry rage monster. It's coherent when it speaks, and it's goal-oriented as it attempts to break free of the ice that holds only one foot in place. Dorothy takes a stand here, screaming at Cositus, declaring that she will not be a victim anymore. The three of them are also not scaling Cositus like Dante and Virgil. Instead, they travel up a long, winding staircase that hugs the walls of the chamber, leading to a bridge, the center of which is being struck by a brilliant white light. Their compassion for each other is reinforced here. When Mr. is split open and emptied, Dorothy manages to save him, refusing to let him go. And the woodman, in turn, is doing his best to keep Dorothy from the same fate. Once they get to the light, they are overcome with warmth and comfort as they are lifted from the other side. Originally, the interlude chapters were placed between the Giant's Well and the Judeca chapter. They were what the travelers experienced as they were delivered to the final circle. They don't really have much to do with the Inferno. They just kind of stand on their own. I decided they could pretty easily be moved and better serve as a transition out of the other side, though. So if you're one of the very few people that have an actual copy of Darker Days of Dorothy Gale, physical or e-book, and have actually read it, eh, you'll notice a difference here. It doesn't affect the plot. I really just wanted to keep the Inferno together and in one piece, instead of having a strange break in it. If that makes any sense. Anyways, these interludes are somewhat akin to the Three Doors chapters of Dark Days. The Red, the Blue, and the Orange. Those chapters spotlighted the lion and his fears, Mister and his growth as a character, and offered possible insight into how Dorothy found herself in Oz. I always say it's up to the reader to decide how real those experiences are for the characters or if they're just dream sequences. The situation here is similar. The woodman is reunited with his lost love, Beatrice. This is really almost more of a premonition. He has returned to his earthly body of flesh and blood. He can feel his heart beating, and when he cries, the tears don't rust and burn. This is the moment he's been striving for since the day she was taken away from him. And it's all taken away again, in the blink of an eye. When he asks why this is how it has to be, Beatrice simply says, Because Ozma is still alive. This moment not only focuses on what defines him, but it also leads into what will define Oz and his role in everything. He serves a higher purpose now. And while I'm not going to call him a prophecy, this might be fate. Interlude Part 2 sees Mr. returned to his home with the seamstress. 
again, everything he's wanted since being taken by the ogre we met at the beginning of Dark Days. His situation takes a turn quickly, however, when the seamstress seemingly insults him and tells him to go fetch her an apple. He is hesitant at first, but finds the courage and the confidence to do as she asks when she tells him what he so desperately wants to hear. She tells him she has faith in him. As he wanders through the forest, his memory fades. Like the self-perceived curse of the bomb scarecrow, he seemingly becomes brainless. He finds Dorothy trying to get an apple as the tree is playing keep-away with her. The two share a brief, nervous encounter with one another before Mr. realizes maybe he's meant to help her. His help turns out to be disastrous, however, when the tree kills Dorothy. That nagging sense of helplessness and that degrading feeling of stupidity and lack of confidence is everything he fears and more. Interlude Part 3 is a reality for Dorothy. I mentioned earlier that Dorothy's vision in the Orange Door chapter of Dark Days is open-ended, and it's up to the audience to decide if it's real. Here, however, there's no question about it. This is a memory of Dorothy Gale. A lot of this book is deeply personal to me. A lot of the characters are modeled after people I know. And if you've been listening long enough, you know Bill Johnson was a real-life douche. I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but I'll make an exception for that guy. Anyways, we met Brian Stoltz earlier on, who has a similar-sounding name to a guy that I once knew, though his character was largely modeled after someone else. And here we have another person, Tim Renfield. A similar name to someone I once knew, and, yes, modeled after someone else. Now, I'm not saying... The names and character descriptions could be swapped. Definitely not saying that. And I'm definitely not winking at the thought of it. So if you're thinking for one minute that the fictional Brian Stoltz might look more like the fictional Tim Renfield and the fictional Tim Renfield might look more like the fictional Brian Stoltz than, well, you might be right. You might be wrong. I will neither confirm nor deny either claim. Also, in 100% sincerity, I'm not claiming either character's real-life inspiration has done anything the characters in my book have done. I'm not saying the real-world Mr. Brian Stoltz or Tim Renfield have ever or would ever commit such disgusting acts. Though I did once hear one of them say to a pregnant woman that if she spread her legs he would give her baby a cow lick right then and there. God, that 
guy was so fucking gross. So let's 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 move on. There's more personal stuff to be mined from this chapter. The factory is based on a place I once worked. The sexism, the nepotism, the mismanagement, the general way in which the factory was operated was truly how I saw it and looked at it. Dorothy's job of crimping wires, her anxiety of never knowing if she was walking into her last day, the way temp jobs were handled to keep benefits down, all that stuff, based in reality as well. It wasn't all bad, however. That's where I met my great friend Floyd. And, you know, if you've been listening to this since the beginning, you know the impact that Floyd had on me and this book. If he was still with us today, he would find the factory description and the character descriptions hilarious. He wouldn't find the gross sexual harassment funny, of course, but he would have laughed at everything else. I know this because before he passed, I shared part of this chapter with him. And yes, he did in fact laugh. And that makes me happy. I miss you, Floyd. Anyway, Dorothy has a run-in with Tim Renfield here. He offers her a promotion, but only if she gives herself up to him. There's a running theme throughout this book of sexual assault. I know I placed a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode, but I can't stress enough the importance of knowing help is out there. Please, if you need help, contact Rain. It's free and it's confidential. The number for their 24-hour helpline is 800-656-HOPE. And HOPE is spelled 4673. You don't have to suffer in silence. And you don't deserve to be ignored. When you're a victim, it's never your fault. We see Tim using manipulative tactics here, putting himself above Dorothy, figuratively with an abuse of power, but also physically by placing her in a chair low to the ground and towering over her. We also see him reinforcing the idea that nobody cares about victims, and nobody believes them. You don't have to look very hard to know that he's not entirely wrong. All too often, victims are blamed, ignored, or just not believed or taken seriously. Tim knows this, and he knows that's why he's going to get away with his disgusting, vile actions. Even though I don't go into great detail of Dorothy's emotional state here, you can certainly assume that it's a devastating situation for her. If I missed something, or if I failed to address something you feel I should have, or if I goofed on my summary of Dante's Inferno, let me know. I'm always open to questions, comments, or constructive criticism. You don't have to like this show. I'm not sure why you're listening, though, if you don't. But like it or not, you can be nice. I know you can. 
I believe in you. I have faith in you. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can do that by emailing the show at darkdaysofdorothygale at outlook.com. I don't have Twitter anymore, or X, I guess, but you can find me on TikTok, where it's at darkdorothyg. Alternately, I appear on TikTok, Instagram, and Threads under the identity of at the ordinary sun. That's S-U-N. The Instagram feed really actually has a lot of fun dark days themed artwork, and so does the TikTok feed. And of course, if social media isn't your jam, there's always the official Dark Days website, ddofdg.com. You can also find links to t-shirts and stickers and stuff there as well. Also, I've compiled a list of all my favorite Dante's Inferno resources. It's got links and brief summaries and reviews of each place. So check out all of that on the website. Darker Days of Dorothy Gale used to be on Amazon as an ebook and in paperback form. But at the time of this recording, the podcast is the only way to experience it. If you would like to support the show, buying a t-shirt or a sticker or something really is the coolest way to go about it. If you would like to support my specific brand of creativity in a more direct and financial way, you can find me at buymeacoffee.com slash ordinary sun. Again, that's S-U-N. And if you do support me in that way, I will send you a personal handwritten thank you note, complete with a fun little sketch. I'll even give you a shout out on this show if you want. If you don't want to donate to this cause, that's fine too. I know times are tough out there. And honestly, I'm happy to do this either way. Come back next time for Not Home Yet, a 31-chapter recap covering everything from part two. Thanks for listening. I love you all.